Today, you are going to get a front row seat into the story behind the scenes of how the 1999 Rugby World Cup was won with Wallabies captain John Eels. John, welcome to Front Row Rugby. Hi, Peter. Lovely to be here. Now, just before we begin our conversation, let's take a look at today's trivia question. Who was the leading point scorer at the 1999 Rugby World Cup? Now, if you know the answer to the question, you can put it in the comment section down below. And we'll also find out if John knows the answer, but we'll do that at the end of our conversation. John, I want to begin in 1999, the obvious starting point. You actually had quite a serious shoulder injury. You missed the June Test matches as well as the Tri-Nations that year. How much of a danger was it of you missing the World Cup that year? Well, Peter, I suppose when I when I did the injury and I it, it happened in the gym, it was a, it was a shoulder, it was a recurrence of an injury that had happened six years prior to that, um, and so I pretty much knew what it did, uh, you know, directly, and so I think the diagnosis was pretty simple, and then the the treatment I needed full you know rotator cuff repair was was also fairly specific, and then we just knew okay, well. You know, if all goes to plan, you know, maybe I'll be able to get back within six months and then have a have a run at the World Cup. So, yeah, you know, there was a chance I wasn't going to make it, but but things progressed pretty well. And, you know, Rod McQueen kept me informed, you know, the whole way through. You know, we stayed close through the through the year. And when the opportunity came to to play a couple of games, I think first I had one game for my club brothers. Um and uh I'm just trying to think, actually. I think I had a game for Brothers and then I had a game for uh, the Australian Barbarians against Fiji, I think it was, and then then went to the World Cup. So I did miss a fair bit that year. Now, moving on to the World Cup, your opening match was against Romania. You won the match quite comfortably, 57-9, as the Wallabies would be expected to do. Nevertheless, John, how difficult can it be to prepare for an opponent like that? I think the first the first game of a World Cup, you've always got this uh yeah this uh combination of of anticipation and anxiety in some respects because you've probably had a bit of a break since your last game uh your last game together and and you want to start to you want to kick off, you know hit the ground running try a few things and get things working early and then build some confidence from that first game and it was really my first game for australia in in quite a while for probably you know, since the previous year, um, so I, I was I was keen to get out there and uh, and and have a run around, and uh, make sure that all all worked well. So um, yeah, and I think after that game, we had you know we built a fair bit of confidence. We saw that things, most things, were going well. We knew we had some stuff to work on, but we could actually start to focus on that. And then probably your toughest pool match was against Ireland. That was the following match. You guys won 23-3, but it was only 6-0 at half time. Talk to me about that match. Yeah, you're really testing my memory here. It's a long time ago. It's a, I, I should have gone back and watched some of these games before um, before uh, enduring this quizzing. Um, but uh, I, I think it was one, one of those games where we went into, we knew it was going to be a hard one. Playing Ireland at home is always tough. We were expected to win, but I think we were quite pleased with how, even though sometimes the scoreline's not completely re- reflective of how things are going, we were we were pretty happy with where we were and how we were travelling at that point in time. Half time, 
you know, just gave us the, the chance to really test ourselves against a world-class team. Uh, and then we could come out in the second half and just really put the, you know, f- finish off, put the finishing touches to it while not really nailing it. Like we were starting to, to go okay. Okay, John, I'm going to really try and test your memory now. You kicked a conversion in that match as well as a penalty uh, in the previous one against Romania. It was, of course, highly irregular still today for a lock to be kicking at goal. When did you first start taking kicks? Probably when I was when I was a junior, I loved kicking. Like you know, you'd always hang around after training. You'd go down to the you know the local field on a Saturday afternoon after school. You go down and just kick, and I always loved it. But then, so I kicked at school, and then Colts rugby. I had a couple of years of under nineteens after I finished school, and then with Queensland, I just had no need to kick for a while because Michael Liner was our kicker, and then he started to go to Italy and would get back late. And what happened, like when you've got the world's best kicker, no one else needed to kick. So pretty much no one else could kick at that stage. And it was John Connolly that pulled me aside one day and just said, right, John, you're kicking. I said, no, I'm not. He goes, yes, you are. And so uh, so that's when I started kicking with Queensland. And um, and then, you know, different stages, we didn't have any kickers for Australia. So I had to kick for Australia as well. And I think it's fair to say that it worked out quite well. Um, the next pool match was against the United States of America. You were rested for that match. Jason Little uh, skip at the side uh, for that victory. I'm keen to hear from you, John. As the captain of the team, how difficult or challenging can it be to have to sit in the stands and watch somebody else lead? Uh, look, when Jason was chosen as captain, I was really thrilled because Jason and I had played together a lot over many years with Australia and played probably against each other in cricket and rugby over many, many years since we were probably about 11 or 12 years of age. So he really had earned the opportunity to to captain Australia. Um, and you knew that he'd, he'd do a great job in doing that. So really, you know, to see, to see him being able to go out there, lead Australia in a, in a, um, in a test match at a world cup, yeah, it was very satisfying, and and he did a he did a great job. The team did a good job that day, although they they did let in our only try of the tournament. <laughs> Maybe you hold that against them to this day. No, I'm I'm just kidding, uh, John. <laughs> John, uh, let's move on to or let, let me put it this way: you spoke about leadership there for a moment, and Rod McQueen had come in at the end of 1997 after a bad run of results. What was your relationship like with Rod? Well, Rod and I ended up having a very, very strong relationship. It didn't necessarily start like that. It started well, um, but then at the end of the first tour, he came in and coached us, took over for the tour of Argentina, England and Scotland, and we went one all in a series with Argentina. Then we had a draw with England and we beat Scotland. And at the end of that tour, we you know, we had a bit of a, uh, you know, a bit of a come-to-Jesus moment, I, I suppose you, you'd, you'd call it, where he really aired a few of the things he wasn't pleased about that I wasn't providing, and and I was able to challenge him in a few ways as well. Now, the conversation was probably a bit longer and more colourful than I've, how I've just described it, but it was a really important conversation because at the end of that conversation, we basically you know, came with the agreement that he would involve me in everything and we would discuss everything behind closed doors, um, no holds barred, but we would always be a unified front after that. Like we could disagree and we could challenge, you know, different ways of thinking in, in the team environment. 
But when decisions were made, um, we would be a united front. And I think that was one of the most important things for our team through that era uh, in that, and in any team, actually, that the captain and coach uh, are, are completely aligned. As I say, they can have a difference of opinion, but you've got to sort that out, you know, in a respectful manner so that when it comes time to lead the team in the direction you want to take the team, that there's no double guessing which way we're going here, which I think there was initially when we um, when we first started. So to continue the topic of leadership, I'd be fascinated to know, John, in the quarterfinal against Wales and the semi-final against South Africa, the match situation was really tight at halftime. So who says what at halftime? I think it depends. We, we had a very set routine. When you would always run back into the change room. We said no matter where we were and what, what state of the game, as soon as the you know the hooter went for half time, we ran into the change room, got in there, and our, our routine was very set. First, the, the doctor and the physio, John Best and Greg Craig and Cameron Lillicrap would would walk around the room, ask every player how they were, any injuries, so that they were on top of that. Second, we would uh, break up into forwards and backs, and, and go through what our particular issues were among our units. Um, and then perhaps our units within that group. And then we would come together as a team. Rod would have his say. Uh, the the coaches would have their say. I'd have a chance to speak. Uh, at that stage, George Gregham's vice-captain, I'd let George speak as well, um, see if he had anything to say or any of the other senior players, leaders in the team, depending on what we needed, what, what who we needed to hear from. And then the coaches would leave us, would have the final say as a team and go out on the field. And speaking of the quarterfinal against Wales, uh, they were the host nation at that stage. How difficult were you expecting that match to be, especially because they were actually quite resurgent at the time? Yeah, we knew it would be difficult. Anytime you play Wales, at you know, whether it be Cardiff Arms Park in the old days, Millennium Stadium, and playing in front of a home crowd in a World Cup quarterfinal where you know any team can beat any other team. We were... Yeah, we, we, we approached that with a bit of apprehension. I remember Tim Horan speaking um, with us before that game and uh, he he really spoke about the Ireland game in, in the in the in the quarterfinal of the, the 91 World Cup where a number of us were there. And he spoke about the quarterfinal against England in the 95 World Cup and how close those games were and they were, you know, they were just on that knife's edge. Um and he said, you know, you, you make a mistake here and you're out and you're on a plane home the next day. You know, we need to, you know, we need to concentrate here, be at our absolute best. There's no saving yourself for the semi or the final. This is where it actually matters, where it's knockout. And and so that really attuned us that little bit extra to that, the importance of that game. Not that you really need it, but I think it always helps when, when you've got someone as experienced, someone you respect as much as as Tim Horan, for example, just reminding you of those things. So, John, even though Wales were the host nation officially for the tournament, you guys also spent time in Ireland and England. I have to ask you, what part of that tour did you enjoy the most? Uh, well, you enjoy it all. Like Ireland was great because our pool matches were there. Yeah, we, we felt we were just a little bit out of the main spotlight where we were. I think we were in Port Marnock where we were staying before our 
our opening game and uh, and just outside of Dublin there on the edges of Dublin. And so that was that was good. It was nice and relaxed and and then the you know the tension anticipation built as we went through the tournament. There's no bad rugby places. You know, there's just they're all good and and you you're really there on a very specific mission. You know, you want to play in the World Cup final and you want to win the World Cup. And so a lot of the external distractions of where you are and what you're doing you've got to put some of those out of your head and um and just focus on what it is that you need to focus on your process to be able to deliver the outcomes do you really know your rugby do you always get your predictions right why not make some money then open an account right now with tic tac bets and get up to 2000 rand and 20 spins with your first deposit the link is appearing on your screen and i'll also put it in the description area Please note that this is an affiliate link and I will make a little commission on it. Winners know when to stop. National Responsible Gambling Program. Toll-free helpline 0800-006-008. No persons under the age of 18 years are permitted to gamble. You mentioned a little bit earlier the 1991 World Cup where you and Tim Horan and some of the others were also involved. Talk to me about the differences between 91 and 99 as you experienced it in terms of the way the tournament had evolved and grown. It had, the tournament had grown enormously. In 91 was, you know, it was still an amateur World Cup. There was only 16 teams. It We really felt that while the first World Cup was in 87, 91 was the one that started to really put it on the world stage. And, and that progressed even more so as the tournament went on. And having England play in the final and us play against England in the final was probably the best thing for the World Cup because you had the home nation... Uh, which just really amped up all the publicity and interest in the tournament. Uh, yeah, really, really, I, th- I think took it to the next level. And 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 then '99 was really the first professional World Cup, if you like, um, where the game had turned professional pretty much after the tournament in South Africa in '95. '96 for us was the first year of professional rugby. And so there were some differences with that. All of a sudden it was, you know, at a different level again. And you really felt it just jumping up each time. You know, more people interested. Uh, by that stage, I think there was 20 teams involved. Uh, but maybe with trying to think how they how they ran that, maybe it was 20 teams with five pools, I think, in that in that 99 World Cup, which was a bit bit unusual and made it a bit awkward when it came to the you know the the playoff match before the quarterfinals. So let's move on to the semi-final against South Africa. Quite an epic encounter really now in the history of the Rugby World Cup. That said, while I was doing my research, I noticed something that I had forgotten. The Wallabies were never behind in that match. Did you guys feel that you were in control? Uh, I thought I thought we might have been behind. Were, were we I thought that they might have scored first after the uh, after extra time. Maybe we were, maybe we were never behind going you know, until the until the 80th minute. Uh, I, I was under the impression South Africa might have kicked a goal early in that in the extra time. But um, anyway, you're probably right. My memory is uh, you know maybe challenged these days. But look, I, I remember going to the ground on the bus and. I specifically asked Tian Strauss to speak with us. And Tian had played the quarterfinal against Wales. And 
Sonic Efu had been suspended, wasn't able to play in that game, and he came back in for the semi-final and took Tian's place, which was tough for Tian. And I asked him to speak with us, and and just as we came into the the bus pulled up at Twickenham, and we we're about to get out, he he stood up in the bus, and and one of the things he said, he said, "Look, you're playing against South Africa. They're de- they're the defending champions. They have what you want, and they're not going to give this up without a fight." He said, "If you want to take it off them, you're going to have to fight till the last minute of this game to be able to do that." And it was pretty prescient, you know, with what uh, with what ended up happening in the hundred minutes that we had to play with the with the twenty minutes of extra time. And I remember also reading out a a fax to the team from Steve War, and the Australian cricket team had won the World Cup and they beat South Africa in the semi final, or, or they drew with South Africa in the semi final, but went through, I think, by virtue of that they were the leading team at that point out of those two teams. And I, I still remember the the facts that he sent through to me and the team. It was if there's one thing better than beating South Africa, it's in a semi final to get through to the World Cup final. It's drawing with them in a semi final to get through to the World Cup final, and it was it was very prescient again, um, drawing it at full time, having to play the extra time to to get through to to the final. But I think being able to do that gave us a lot of confidence. South Africa is so hard to play and you knew you had to confront them and beat them physically before you ever were going to beat them on the scoreboard. And so that was, you have to be ready for that. You have to be ready for that challenge. And it was a really important challenge for us to overcome before we played what ended up being the French in the final. The week before, Yanni de Beer had written his name across rugby history with those five drop goals against England in South Africa's quarterfinal. How ironic is it then that Australia would kick a drop goal to beat South Africa in the semi-finals? Yeah, and probably even more ironic, I think it was the first drop goal Stephen Larkham had ever kicked in his life. Very, yeah, look, it's, yeah, we were so attuned to the threat of Yanni de Beer in that you know, playing 5A, you know, the ability to kick those field goals because, you know, it could just work up points and, and just pressure on the scoreboard is so much in those games and you can just get a, that lead and keep nudging away to staying out of reach. So we were very attuned to that and trying to stop any opportunity. And he was kicking them. He wasn't just kicking them from 22 metres out. You know, it was 40 and 50 metres out. They were almost, you felt you weren't quite safe. Um, when it came to the extra time, I think it was Tim Lane, our assistant coach, said to Stephen Larkham as he ran out on the field, don't forget the field goal. If there's a chance, just, you know, be, you know, bang one over. And um, and that ended up being, you know, probably that might have been what gave us the lead. Uh, and then um, and then I think Matt Burke kicked another goal after that. That's exactly the way that it worked out. So the following day, France, one of the great upsets in the history of rugby, I think at the time, certainly, beating the All Blacks in that semi-final. I'm assuming that you were anticipating that you would play New Zealand in the final. What was your reaction to that result? We certainly felt that on the balance of probabilities, we would be playing New Zealand in the final. So a lot of the work we had done after our semi-final against the the Springboks leading into that was how are we going to play New Zealand? What are we going to have to do? And at halftime, it just looked more so like, what are we going to have to do against New Zealand? And then 
we just saw one of the most incredible halves of rugby played by the French. And as the game progressed, Dave Wilson, I, I remember really clearly, um, you know, saying, and there, you know, whatever the mood was in the team, you know, there was part surprise, part, uh, you know, anticipation of us playing in the final and against the French. And David just said, look, guys, we've just sat here. We've just watched what they did to the All Blacks. He said they could do that to us. This is going to be a super hard game. And, and it just reinforced how focused we had to be that week. The busiest people for the next 24 hours were our video analysts in that they had to go and search, you know, cut up that game, go search for footage of the, the French you know, from whatever they had to look for and cut that up so that it was ready for us in the morning so that we could look at it, analyse it and work out what what we had to do, the focus we needed to have leading into the final and on the field. So the week of the final, I'd be very interested to hear from you what the preparation was like, because I've heard different theories. Some people say that in the week of the final, you don't do anything differently. Other people say that you need to do things differently. What did the Wallabies do? We kept our routine of of the rhythm of the week, if you like, the cadence of the week, where initially it's about analysing the opposition. Then you're looking at your performance and what you need to be doing in in order to play against this specific opposition. The start of the week would be some lighter training and particularly having played 100 minutes in a in a semi-final, you knew that, okay, that's going to be harder to, to, to recover from than 80 minutes. And so there was a lighter week. The, the Monday after the Sunday game, we just went to a an indoor basketball court and pretty much just walked around, started to walk. The morning was all planning, maybe a light gym session, um, recovery session. The afternoon, we walked around a gym saying, okay, in this part of the field, this is what the French might be doing. This is this is how what we want to be doing, just walking through various moves. Started to put in a bit of bit more physical work on the Wednesday, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. Thursday, had the day off. Friday was a captain's run preparing for the Saturday. But it's a different week because you know that at the end of that week that whatever else happens, you're either going to be the world champions or you're not. And that's a pretty binary outcome. Uh, and, And you know that as a team, you just work so hard for this moment. You want to leave no stone unturned. And you can play really well and lose these games. And... And so that was a possibility, and you have to live with that possibility. But you don't want to lose because you've you've left a stone unturned that week. You haven't prepared properly, and so that week has a lot, has your head racing. I think in a lot of ways, have we done this? Have we done that? What do we do if the French if the French do this? Have we prepared properly? Is this have I had that conversation with that guy? Do Rod and I need to go through this again? And so I find my head races at these at these times. So sleeping was actually quite difficult. I wasn't concerned because I knew that I always have enough energy. Adrenaline would get me through the final. I wasn't going to be super nervous running out in the field. I was going to be excited. But you still want to, you, you need to get some sleep. So what I did every night, like I'd find it hard to get to sleep early. I'd just often write things down, say, you know, thinking, you know, have I thought through this? And if I, you know, if I write things down, then that would 
take something that was overwhelming to something that I could control. And um, and I'd write down different notes, what I might say here, what I might do. Um, but then I'd find myself waking up in the morning very early and I'd you know probably go and do the same if I couldn't get back to sleep. So I was working off not as much sleep as I usually would enjoy, but I knew that it was an important week and and that was a sign that, you know, I'm actually ready for this. I'm I'm ready, and and each of us would have dealt with it in different ways. For me, that's that's how I focused. John, I spoke to Mark Andrews, the 1995 Springbok Rugby World Cup champion, uh, a few weeks ago on Front Row Rugby, and he told me that when the Springboks arrived on the bus for that final, he made eye contact with Ian Jones, and according to Mark, he says that in that moment. He knew that the All Blacks didn't think that they could beat the Springboks. It's a very interesting story. Was there anything similar that happened uh, for you that made you think that the Wallabies were unbeatable that day? Uh, look, probably not unbeatable. I, I never, I never go in feeling we're unbeatable. Like I always go in, sort of protecting the downside, if you like, thinking we've got to start. You can go in with confidence, but. You also go in knowing that if you don't, um, Rob McQueen used to often say, you know, you've still got to put, put the oar in the water. And he used to do a lot of surf boat rowing. And and in rugby, you still had to do the work. If you didn't do the, the clean out, if you didn't do all the things that that don't require talent, the things that just require a bit of grit, a bit of, bit of determination, just a bit of effort, if you still don't get in and do all that, well, um, you know, you're not, you're not going to get the result you need. Any time in my career, and it could have been in an under-10 game or a test match, any time I felt that we we couldn't lose, I reckon we lost. <laughs> like there was times you felt you'd done so much preparation and you were well prepared, but I'd still go into the game, you know, paranoid about ways we could lose and what we had to do to stop, to stop losing and the work we had to do. You know, maybe that was just you know, mindset I had with everything is probably a bit of a negative mindset in some respects, but I'm actually a very positive person. But I would just always just have in the back of my mind that there were these all these things we could had to do before we got confident. And 35-12, as it turns out, to this day is still the record winning score in a Rugby World Cup final. Comprehensive scoreline. How satisfying was that? Yeah, I don't think the scoreline matters as much as the fact that it's either a W, that it's a W, it's a win. Um, because, yeah, the, the the most important thing people recognise is your world champions. That's that's the goal. And but I think it was it was a good testament to our team. I think because the French were a very good team. Um, they played incredibly well against the All Blacks. We knew what they were capable of. The first half was really close. Um, even the start of the second half. And it wasn't until we scored that try, I think Ben Churn scored the the first try, and uh, that sort of, we started to feel, you know what, as long as we do things well, we're going to win this. Um, but we had seen what they did to the All Blacks. But then when Owen Finnegan scored that try, there was just this great sense of we we are going to win it from here. And then some of the other guys got the chance to come on the field at the end and um, and enjoy that game, enjoy the last moments of the World Cup. And it's pretty rare that you can be in the last moments of a World Cup and know that you're going to win. When I talk about you know, that feeling, like it may be the last two, three, four minutes, 
well, you know, it's still going to be hard, but you really can enjoy those moments and just really go, you know, play hard into it, into the finish line. You mentioned Owen Finnegan's try. I've got to ask you, John, given the match situation, why didn't you take the conversion? Oh, no. Look, why would you take it off Matt Burke? He was kicking so well that day under all the pressure. Yeah, there was no need for me. I was always happy when I wasn't kicking. Hey, if you're enjoying this video, why not consider becoming a patron? You can click on my Patreon link. I'll put it on the screen as well as in the description box. And there will be great benefits for members. Let's get back to the interview. Similar question uh, to just a moment ago. What does it feel like when the referee blows the final whistle and you are a rugby world champion? Well, number one, the feeling is relief. And I, I think at the end of the the game against England in 91, it was it was different because that game was you know, went down to the wire, whereas in France we had those few moments where we knew that we were going to be world champions. So, But in both cases, the primary feeling is relief. You've worked so hard over the preceding four-year period. For me, in 91, it was I only came into the team that year. But but the 99, I was part of the, you know, the tough times after after the, you know, South Africa in 95, getting knocked out in the quarterfinals. And it got probably tougher for us for a couple of years. And then I was part of the rebuild. And we knew how hard we had worked. We knew the things we had had to push through. Each of us had our personal challenges we had to push through as a team we had to push through challenges um families had made big sacrifices we had made big sacrifices so just that relief when you get to that moment that you've got that validation that this was all worthwhile i mean if if we had have lost it's still worthwhile but it's you know it's worthwhile plus you've got that satisfaction that no one can ever take that victory away from you and then you received the Webb Ellis Cup from Queen Elizabeth II. Do you remember what she said to you? It was actually the day that we that Australia voted as to whether we wanted to be, become a republic or uh, we had the referendum, uh, whether we wanted to head, work towards becoming a republic or, or stay part of the, the Commonwealth. So I can't remember the exact words, but maybe she said, congratulations, it's great that we keep the trophy in the Commonwealth, something along those lines maybe, but... Uh, yeah, what what an honour to be able to receive the trophy off such a historical figure that that were, who was so respected, um, irrespective of what your view was, whether you were a Republican or a monarchist, she was a very respected lady. And right up until when she passed away last year, was it last year or this year? Last year, I think, isn't it? Last year. Um, you know, to, that you've had, you know, a moment with, with someone you've shared a historical moment with someone who has been one of the iconic figures in the world for the last 70 odd years absolutely john i've got to ask you you mentioned the feeling of relief at the final whistle as a captain you get to have the final whistle moment but you also get to have the trophy lifting moment how do those two feelings compare no never really thought about that much i think I think the trophy is the physical representation of what you what you're after. So getting that in your hands and getting it into the team and doing the lap of honor, seeing different guys in the team pass it round and hold it up. Everyone have the chance to go through, get it and and lift up the cup and have their moment. And probably more so than the moment of receiving the trophy, I remember 
back to the 91 World Cup and when we got that trophy back in the change room and we passed it around the change room and and I remember the call went up in 91 and it went, uh, you, know, you might say, you know, Troy Coker would get it and he'd say, Troy Coker, world champion, and then he'd drink out of the out of the trophy and went around to everyone in the team and the management. And I, I remembered back to that and for a minute in the week leading up to the final, I had that thought and how good that thought was. And I thought, gee, it'd be great if we had had the chance to experience that again. And so we, when we came back in and we had the trophy there with us, we did the same. We passed around. Everyone had the chance to grab that trophy. And we said, Tim Horan, double world champion, or, or um, Matt Cobain, world champion, whoever whoever it was, everyone as, as it went around. And probably the other moment before that was when we each got the chance to get our medal off the Queen and and get the trophy, we, we walked across and we put the trophy in the middle we stood around that trophy and we sang the national anthem out there on the field, and that was a that was a pretty special moment. Running around the field after that and having the chance to, you know, some of our whether it be our parents, our wives, um, family, we were able to come down and we were able to hug them on the edge of the field. Like that's pretty special. All right, John, you won the World Cup, you won the Tri-Nations, you, as captain of the Wallabies, beat every nation uh, that you came up against. In fact, you have a winning record against them. At school, you were a very talented cricket all-rounder, I have read. You've also been very successful post-rugby in business as an author and as a speaker. Your nickname, Nobody, because nobody's perfect. So go on then, tell us something that proves that John Eels is, in fact, human. Well, there's so many, so many examples I can give. Like maybe I'll go back to, uh, you know, even, even if I go back to school, like swimming carnivals, I was hopeless in the pool. I, was, I think I was better than George Gregan in the pool, but um, but that was probably pretty much the only person in the team I, I, I was maybe as good at in the pool. But school swimming carnivals that have all the people, they have all the races, and then they'd say, okay, all those people that are involved in the novelty events across the pool now, you can come down. And I was one of those people who was pretty much involved in the novelty events across the shallow end of the pool. But no, believe me, there's a lot of things that um, that I could work a lot harder at. Sounds good. So, John, uh, given that you were a very talented sportsman at school level, uh, excelling in rugby and cricket, for example, what would your advice be to a youngster who has similar skill levels? I had so much satisfaction from playing different sports and my main pursuits were cricket was probably number one coming through school, rugby, high jump and and basketball and basketball more towards the end of school. And I just, I love them all and, you know, play golf and stuff. I think that there's too much pressure to specialise too early these days and the benefits you can get just from a physical preparation from one sport to another, just from a mental preparation from one sport to another, the lessons you learn can be invaluable. Like the lessons you learn as a as a cricketer, knowing that each ball is different and each ball you have to prepare, and, and it doesn't matter what happened in the ball before, is really pertinent for you know, goal kicking, for example. Like each goal kick is a discrete you know, opportunity to show your skills. Um, and nothing that happened in the kick before should influence what happens in that next kick. 
you know, basketball, the dexterity, the the ability to under pressure in a contest be able to get up and and you know win a win a, you know win the ball in a in a, in a contest is really important. You know, uh, the the mental ability across different different challenges it's so important. And I feel sorry for young athletes these days in the sports that are demanding that they train all off season for that one sport and and then just play the games in that one sport i think they're missing out on so much and uh, i know for me that by the end of the rugby season i probably had enough when i was younger i just wanted to do something i'd love to live to play cricket by the end of the cricket season you know i couldn't wait to get a rugby ball in my hand and, and play rugby and uh that's it just contributed so much towards that fun element of playing. The dad used to always say to me, he said, John, just remember, it's only a game. Go out there and enjoy yourself. And yeah, it was probably more than a game from time to time. But that that enjoyment factor is so important because the more you enjoy it, the harder you'll work, the more satisfaction you'll get out of it, and the better you'll be. Sounds good to me. So, John, we're going to finish off with the trivia question. Who was the leading point scorer at the 1999 Rugby World Cup? Do you know the answer, John? Uh, look, I'm going to guess. I'm going to say it's Matthew Burke, but it could, it could have either been Matthew Burke or Andrew Mertens or someone, but I'm going to say Matthew Burke. And you know what, John? As it turns out, Matthew Burke finished one point behind. Is it the Argentinian who beat him? Gonzalo Quesada, the Argentine, quite right. Ah, that's right. That's right. One point yeah. behind. And that, that would have been when I took over the kicking that day, took it off him. <laughs> no. Maybe Matthew Burke will blame me for that. <laughs> John Ills, let me say that it was an absolute pleasure having you on Front Row Rugby today. A fascinating conversation. It really was a pleasure. And I hope that we can have you on again in the future. Thank you, Peter. My pleasure.